the explanation here of why it's possible that that really is correct. I wanted to make sure I had enough time to prepare for Sunday. thought it'd be better just to um, preach something um, that I didn't preach in a long, long time. I've, I preached on Psalm 27 like 10 years ago, and it's just such a great psalm. I thought it'd be really encouraging for us to look at again. It's been really good reviewing it this week for my heart. And then we'll continue with Acts on Sunday. Um, that's what I've been working on early. And yeah, we'll be back in Revelation. This is just a, a one-off because the the leaders are meeting for a retreat this weekend to help plan and um, focus our our attention for the for the upcoming year. So I want to do that. All right, Psalm 27. Um, let me open with a word of prayer and then we'll dive in. Father, I thank you that we can gather together as believers. To worship you and to be directed by your word. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is our light. It is a lamp to our feet. It's by your word that we have our hope strengthened. You give us guidance and insight and understanding. Lord, you help us to see our sin, that we might repent. Lord, that we might have confidence that we're following you and obeying you. Lord, we realize daily our need for you. And our need to be reminded of your promises. We're easily distracted and we easily fall back into worldly and ungodly patterns of thinking and even in, the, in our affections. And so we pray that you would renew our minds, you'd renew our hearts, and you'd strengthen us um, in the present and for the future. And we pray that you would, just, again, give insight through Psalm 27 to our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice and be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You've been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me. O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me. But the Lord will take me up. 
Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have arisen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. One of the more uh, encouraging books that I've read in, in the last decade or so is a book I was given by one of my students. In fact, when I was reading it, um, I, I was so emotionally struck at one particular scene that I cried as heavily as I can ever remember. It, it's a book entitled Unbroken. Some of you might have read it. It's an amazing story about Louis Zamperini, who was an un, unlikely Olympic athlete who had his athletic career interrupted by World War II. And he gets drafted into the army and becomes a bombardier in a B, for a B-24 in the Pacific Theater. And he, he makes it miraculously through one death-defying mission after another until eventually his B-24 bomber crashes in the middle of the ocean. And he survives for months on a life raft with no supplies drifting on currents just in the open ocean. And he actually shatters the record. The record... It, for living on a life raft without any supplies had been 34 days. And he made it 46 days. And then they find an island, but instead of making it to the island, they are intercepted by a Japanese boat and he's thrown into an internment camp, a POW camp. And throughout the book, you just I find myself, as I was reading it, thinking, okay, they, he's just going to get it through this thing, get get through this, and it, it can't get any worse. And, and he gets through something, and then it does get worse. In fact, it's like things continue to get worse. And throughout the, the story of his life, again and again, Zamperini finds himself praying, God, if you, if you just get me through this, I will turn and give my life over to you. And I mention this as an introduction because... Honestly, it's, it's through trials that opens up our eyes for how desperately we need God. More than anything else, trials draw our focus and attention to God. And this church is certainly no stranger to trials, and neither are any of you. And I have no doubt that God has used the trials in your life to, to teach you to depend upon Him and to trust Him. And really, they can be one of the greatest blessings in our life because they, they strip away the, the more fragile or just the veneer of hopes that we put into the, 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 the untrustworthy things in this life. You know, whether it's money or uh, a career advancement or a relationship, those things aren't as dependable as the world would make us think. And the essence of Psalm 27 is, even as it says here, as I read it in, in the NAS, a psalm of fearless trust in God. It's a psalm all about how to fight fear. And usually, you know, fear comes upon us when we're in the midst of a trial. So this is a great psalm to take people to 
who are feeling anxious um, or struggling with the uncertainty of the future. It could be if you're visiting somebody in a hospital room or you are alerted in the, in the middle of the night. One of your kids is struggling with a nightmare or somebody tells you they haven't heard from a loved one and they're fearing for the worst. Or simply when a person's facing a new and uncertain situation. This is a great psalm just to open up to and say, let's just read Psalm 27. Because it is just loaded with truths that will help us fight all that, the temptation that that comes with fear. And really, this is a spirit-inspired prayer of David. And he gives us four principles for fighting fear within it. All which center around trusting God. First, he says, calls us to trust in the strength of God. And then to prioritize worshiping God, plea for God's presence, and then finally he exhorts us to wait patiently for him. So David begins in verse 1 with an exhortation that we should trust in the strength of God through his example. David describes God as his light, his salvation, and his stronghold here. Light, of course, signifies the power to overwhelm darkness. Right? Darkness is terrifying because it keeps us from seeing what's in front of us. We, just, we don't know what's out there. We don't know if that something's going to harm us or threaten us. And really, that's what our future is like. We have no confidence in what the next five hours is going to hold, let alone the next five months. Horrible things could happen. And you think about it, those, those horrible things are quite likely. And the fear can be overwhelming at times because we don't know. But despite this fact, David knows that he can face the unknown with confidence because God is his light. He doesn't actually have to see what's going to happen in the next five minutes or five years because God is his light. And he's given David everything he needs to know for the future, in his word, in his promises. He says his salvation, his stronghold. And both terms indicate David has confidence that God's going to preserve him no matter what happens. So David has nothing to fear. Even if there are men actively out to cause him harm. Or even if whole armies are out to get him, he says, an army a camp against me, verse 3. My heart shall not fear because I'm in God's hands. Now, being a, a bit of a romantic, when I was a, a kid, I used to, to think about how wonderful it would be to live in a castle, to uh, walk amongst its massive rooms and vaulted ceilings or to walk along the ramparts and, and look out over a valley or the ocean, whatever would be on the other side, the tall towers. But what I failed to understand as a child is that, that castles were not built uh, to be uh, homes of luxury. They were fortresses. They were primarily built to actually protect the citizens, especially the early castles that were initially established uh, to protect from marauders like the Vikings who would come and pillage the countryside. The, the townspeople could run into the castle and be preserved from harm. And they would have supplies and protection for whatever they would need during those 
pillagings. And this is what David envisions when he describes God as his salvation and his stronghold. God is the, when his life is threatened, he could turn to God. He could run to God. And that's what he's doing here in this psalm. He's pleading, God, help me. Keep me safe. Protect me. I trust you. Therefore, keep me safe. And it's helpful to keep in mind that that David's not just some coward. Recall that this is the same person who as a boy, a teenager, Isaiah's age or Graham's age, had killed a lion and a bear. Now, (laughs) if Graham came home and said, Dad, I killed a a lion, a, a mountain lion, a cougar today. You may not let him wander wherever he killed the, the lion, but that's what David's job was. He was a shepherd. He was out, and he killed these animals that were threatening the flock. He wasn't, he wasn't a chicken. Um, and moreover, he, he killed the most fearsome warrior known in that time, Goliath, with a slain stone, when everybody else cowered before him. So David's no coward, and yet he realizes he needs to run to God. When he's facing fear. I love, it's worth repeating the story in 1 Samuel 17. Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you're but a youth. And he's been a man of war from his, from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. I just imagine my, my my wife would probably say, you know, if it, if, it, if a cougar gets a hold of Sally, you know, <laughs> give it, have, let it have its lunch. Um, but David took it down. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And we need we need those words because David was just a man, just like us. And we need to have the same sort of confidence that he had. And it's true. You could look at the story of David's life and God preserved him again and again and again as David cried out to the Lord for help. And David was also a great sinner. He was not perfectly righteous, as you know. But God is a God who loves to care for all who run to him. And so as you face fears presently or or in the near future, in the far future, run to God. Trust in the strength of God in the midst of fear. Secondly, we should prioritize worshiping God. David says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I'm always struck when I read verse 4, because he says, one thing I have asked for. Now, we know David asked for more than one thing. In fact, we have a whole record of his requests in the book of Psalms. David asked for multiple things. So what does he mean when he says, the one, this is the one thing I ask? Well, he's saying that he has made worshiping God, being in the presence of God, his main priority. That's what he lives for. That's what drives him in everything that he's doing. 
And he wants God to know that. Everything else in his life flows from this one desire that he would dwell in the presence of God forever. And, and what he's referring to when he, when he refers to this desire to dwell in the presence of God is, is to be in the temple. That's what, where the worship took place, actually, or the tabernacle, because he was building the temple at this point. And he just wanted to be in God's presence. That's where he felt most satisfied. That's where he felt most fulfilled and at peace. It was, it was, it was as if he was made for this purpose. So David did not have the privilege just to take God with him wherever he went. Now, he could pray to God wherever he was. But he couldn't have God's presence the same way it was in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies. Where, where he could present a sacrifice and know he was in the true, very real presence of God. Because he had to be holy or else he would be struck dead. He wanted to be with God. He loves to worship God, and this is the one pursuit of his life. Very similar to what Jesus said to, to Martha. Right? When she rebuked him for not telling his, her sister to help her work with all the things that she was preoccupied with. She was busy. But instead of, re, instead of heeding Martha's request, he turned to her and said, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and worried about many things. But one thing. Is necessary. And we need we need to be reminded of that only one thing is necessary for us in life, and that is to be in the presence of the Lord. And that's why I'm, you're here tonight. You want to to be in God's presence, so to speak, as we look at His Word and as we pray together as a church. And the truth is that when we do pursue God and make Him our priority we're reminded that we're not alone. We're reminded that he's, that he's there, that He's going to care for us, He's going to protect us. And in fact, even in this trial, David knows it's ultimately going to result in his joy and exaltation. Right? Look at verse 6. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in His tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. I mean, this is the king of Israel. and He's not going to hold anything back. He says, I will sacrifice, I will sing, I will make it very clear to everybody that you are my treasure. Because you are my treasure. And because you are my treasure, I know I'm going to make it through this. He has confidence that God's going to preserve him. Because he prioritizes worshiping God. Thirdly, he pleads for God's presence. Verse 7, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You've said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Right, again, David's request for aid, it's bolstered again by his confidence that he's seeking God's will. And this is confirmed in his acknowledgement that God's face is his one pursuit. He says that in verses 7 and 8. Now, the face of God, again, is this figure of speech. It's a, it's a metaphor of God's presence. He wants to, to gaze upon the face of God, not literally, but, but 
to delight in being with him, to, to live out an intimate relationship with him. And when we do that, we can be confident that even in the most difficult circumstances, God will bless us. But that doesn't mean that things are always going to be easy. As David says, he's been asking for God's face, seeking it. And yet God is allowing him in the present moment to face extreme adversity. Right? Look at the words. I cry aloud. Do not hide your face. Do not turn away in anger. Do not cast me off. We have to see David is in the midst of anguish. He is feeling fear. He's fighting loneliness and desperation. And yet he was seeking God's face. God's allowing him to feel his vulnerability, his weakness, even though David has made it the focus of his life to prioritize God's worship. Right? So that we just need to be, we need to be reminded of that. We could, we could be living this way, making it the one thing that we're seeking, and yet God is still going to allow us to be tried. There's no way to escape trials as a believer. And God will use trials for good. Recall that George Mueller said he had, he had made seeking God's face his chief aim in his life. He said, according to my judgment, the most important point to be attended to is this. Above all things, see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. Other things may press upon you. The Lord's work may even have urgent claims upon your attention. But I deliberately repeat. It is the supreme and paramount importance that you should seek above all things to have your souls truly happy in God himself. I believe I, I read that quote a couple weeks ago. We were looking at Revelation. And yet, even though Mueller did this, especially as he advanced in years, this did not keep him from losing his wife. His beloved wife fell sick, and he pled with the Lord to answer his prayers for her healing. And, and if you know the story of George Mueller, he had answered thousands of prayers, very specific prayers to meet Mueller's needs. And yet he didn't answer this one. He said after the death of his wife, actually in the funeral sermon for her, he said, the last portion of scripture which I read to my precious wife was this. The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. He says, now if we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have received grace. We are partakers of grace. And to all such he will give glory also. I said to myself, with regard to this latter part, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. I am in myself a poor, worthless sinner, but I have been saved by the blood of Christ, and I do not live in sin. I walk uprightly before God. Therefore, if it is really good for me, my darling wife will be, wife will be raised up again, sick as she is. God will restore her again. But if she is not restored again, then it would be not a good thing for me. And so my heart was at rest. I was satisfied with God. 
And all this springs, as I've often said before, from taking God at his word, believing what he says. That's, that is what David's getting at in what he's saying here. It doesn't mean God is going to relieve you from every trial. But if we can seek the Lord's face, make him our priority, we can be satisfied in God in the midst of any trial. And David's primary request in the psalm is that God would be with him in his trials. He doesn't want to be left alone. Again, this is, this is the same man who as a teenager killed a bear and a lion. And then the Philistine. But notice in verse 10 what he says. My mother and father have forsaken me. Now we know of no accounts in David's life when this would have happened. So it's possible he's just being metaphorical. He's just describing the, the, the sense of utter abandonment from those that he would look to for help and support. But whether his parents really did abandon him or, or his friends did abandon him, the point of what he's saying is he feels desperately lonely. And the last thing he wants, the one thing he's requested, is God, don't leave me. But notice what he says in verse 10. Even when he feels completely alone, he says, but the Lord will take me in. Right? The, the point being, even when the entire world forsakes you, nobody understands what you're going through. Maybe you've been slandered or lied against. Or just people just don't know because you can't say for whatever reason. The Lord knows. And he won't forsake you. I've mentioned many times the missionary John Payton. And he wrote, as he remembered the most frightening period of his life when he was hiding alone from these cannibals that wanted to kill him, he says, Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw near to me and speak more soothingly to my soul. Alone, yet not alone. Had I been a stranger to Jesus and to prayer, my reason would have verily given way. But my comfort and my joy sprang from the promise, Lo, I am with you always. And he talks about, he was in the midst of great peace. He actually goes on to say, I will, I will never forsake any sort of purity in my life that's like that to have the Lord draw so near to me as he was in those hours it was, it was a high point in his life and he was he didn't know if he was going to live and nobody would have known what happened nobody would have known how faithful he was nobody would have known his story and he said it was the sweetest moment in his life because he understood God was with him he wouldn't leave him So even when you're alone, you're not alone, whether that's physically or emotionally. And I think I, I love this. I think more maybe the best part of this, this psalm, because that just personally, I have a great fear of loneliness. Um, I hate being alone. It, it, even when I'm traveling, it's 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 I, it's an emotional trial for me to not have my family with me. And it's a good reminder, this psalm, that even then I can be satisfied in the presence of Jesus. God knows you better than anybody. He recognizes the turmoil, the trials that you're going through. He knows all you're going through now. 
And notice that despite the fact that David is feeling anxious and lonely, he's confident in God, as verses 5 and 6 show. Right? The Lord will take me in. Now, how would he know that? As Mueller said, it's the promise of God. He's just clinging to the promise of God, despite how he feels. Right? And that's, that's the key here. Fear will, will, will embed your mind and it will, it will write narratives and stories about what's going on and your imagination will take control and you need, to, you need to be able to say, that's not true. What is true is what God's word says. Despite how you feel. A few years ago, I came across this blog article written by John Piper and I found it so helpful. It's, it's, it's a bit lengthy, but it, I think it's worth reading. There are mornings when I wake up feeling fragile, vulnerable. It's often vague, no single threat, no one weakness, just an amorphous sense that something is going to go wrong and I will be responsible. It's usually after a lot of criticism. Lots of expectations that have deadlines and that seem too big and too many. As I look back over about 50 years of such periodic mornings, I'm amazed how the Lord Jesus has preserved my life and my ministry. The temptation to run away from the stress has never won out. Not yet, anyway. This is amazing, and I worship Him for it. How has He done this? By desperate prayer and particular promises. I agree with Spurgeon. I love the I wills and the I shalls of God. Instead of letting me sink into a paralysis of fear or run to a mirage of greener grass, he has awakened a cry for help and then answered with a concrete promise. Here's an example. This is recent. I woke up feeling emotionally fragile, weak, vulnerable. I prayed, Lord, help me. I'm not even sure how to pray. An hour later, I was reading in Zacharias, seeking the help I'd cried out for. It came. The prophet heard great news from an angel about Jerusalem. This is Zechariah 2, 4, and 5. Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be glory in her midst. And he goes on to explain how this promise in Zechariah sustained him, particularly the promise that God would prosper and protect his people and be glorified in their midst. And then he concludes, God is never content to give us the protection of his fire. He will give us pleasure of his presence. It's good. Piper said, this was sweet to me. This carried me for days. I took this with me to the pulpit. I took it with me to family gatherings. I took it to staff meetings. I took it to phone calls and emails. This has been my deliverance every time since I was first marking my King James Bible at age 15. God has rescued me with cries for help and concrete promises. This time he said, I will be to her a wall of fire all around, and I will be glory in her midst. Cry out to him. Then ransack the Bible for his appointed promise. We are fragile, but he is not. And this is, this is the heart of Psalm 27. Plead for God's presence. Fourthly, wait patiently for God to lead. It says in verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. 
that that word um, well let me keep going actually verse 12 give me not up to the will of my adversaries for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence so he's in the midst of difficulty stress threat and it's real then verse 13, he says, I believe that I shall live, look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He's going to make it through this is what he means. Not just, not just when he's resurrected, but in the land of the living. And then he says in verse 14, wait for the Lord. Right? He exhorts us, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Right? That... that Word there, it means to, to hope, to look forward to with eager expectation. It means enduring patiently with the confidence that God will rescue you. So it doesn't, it doesn't just simply mean wait in the, in the sense of just letting time pass, right? Like I'll tell my kids to, to wait to begin eating until we've at least given thanks to God first. It's a, almost a daily occurrence, almost a mealtime occurrence. But... It's, this is different. This is more like saying, wait to open your presence because tomorrow's Christmas. Right? There's a, there's a sense of confidence. Like, it's going to happen. It will happen. It's something to look forward to. But it's not just letting time go by. It's knowing now is not the right time because the right time will come and God will bring it at the right time. Right? And you can have confidence. You can... You can be satisfied in God until He comes. Or He delivers in the way that He has planned. And notice David's confidence that precedes this exhortation to wait. Again, I believe that I shall look in the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He's going to survive. He's confident God's going to answer His prayer. God will not give me up to the will of my adversaries. And so, in doing this, he's, he's, he's calling us to, to cry out with confidence to God in the midst of the trials, when we feel the fear, knowing that He will provide for our needs. And one of, one of the things I appreciate about cartoons and children's stories is that you always know things are going to work out for the characters. You just know. Now, my, my little guys, they're not always so confident. And so when the main characters get into a scrape, they're nervous. You can see it in their eyes. Like, how is he going to get out of this one? And the rest of us are thinking, oh, we'll see what the writers decide to cook up. I remember I, when, it was maybe a two, year or two ago, Isaiah and Daniel were pointing out to me that the Hardy Boys <laughs> always get, it's the same plot pattern. They always get captured by the big guys and they get find out a way of getting out. And it's like, and so when you're reading the book, you're just trying to find out, okay, what's, how are they going to get out of this one? Because you know they will, because they have like 150, right? Well, there, there's a piece there, right? We can just look forward to how it's going to be answered. And that's essentially what David's calling us to here. When, when we're clinging to the promise of God, the same is true for us. Right? We know that God is going to work all things out for good. We may not know how exactly that's going to happen, but we know it's going to happen. Because He's sovereign. He's promised this. And He doesn't lie. 
We might not know how it's going to happen. We have to have that main, we have to have that, that confidence, just like we do when we're watching, I don't know, G.I. Joe get into a scrape and it looks like Cobra's going to take over the world because they got nukes or whatever. We're going to get out of it. Right? You know that. The same is true for you. It may not be in the way that you're expecting. It may be by the Lord taking you home. But, but you will not face anything that the Lord has not designed for your good and for His glory. God allows us to endure trials. He gives us these trials. He gives us these periods of uncertainty because actually these are the things that will work to, to, to bring us into Christ-likeness. Right? Every trial, James says, will make us complete. Right? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It does that. And let this steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Like, that's what all of us are praying for, I'm sure, every morning. God, I want to be more faithful. When we confess, God, please don't let me do this again. Help me to be more steadfast in my faith, more disciplined, more focused, more joyful, more whatever. This is what God does. And so when he brings these trials, he's, he's actually working this in our lives. And that's why James says, count it joy. You haven't been forsaken. He's using this to prove that your faith is real and to make it even stronger steel. And even if you don't make it through, you die. He's just making that Christ-likeness happen far, far faster than we ever expected it to. Because the next thing we'll experience is the resurrection. And our responsibility is simply to believe that this is true. Which is why David exhorts us to wait. Stand confidently knowing that God is aware of your circumstances. He will provide for you. Conclude with this, this story that I read, uh, I believe it was last year, um, in Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret, a book about his life. Uh, he was sailing to China to begin doing missionary work. As you know, he was just a famous missionary to inland China. But before he got to China, he, there, was a, there was a point where he didn't think he was going to make it. Uh, the ship that he was in was in grave danger. The wind had died, and so they were being carried by this current towards a sunken reef next to this island. Well, that's dangerous enough, shipwrecks. I mean, you know, few people would make it out of it alive. But worse than that, the, 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 there were people on that island, and they were cannibals. And they saw the ship coming. They knew it was ha- happening. And they were actually starting the fires to cook the sailors that were stuck and marooned. And so in his journal, Taylor record what, what, recorded what happened next. The captain said to me, well, we've done everything that can be done. And a thought occurred to me. And I replied, no, there is one thing we have not done yet. And what is that, he queried. Four of us on board are Christians. Let us each retire to his own cabin in an agreed prayer. Ask the Lord to give us immediately a breeze. Taylor prayed briefly and then, certain that the answer was coming, went up on deck and asked the first officer to let down the sails. What would be the good of that? He answered roughly. I told him we had been asking a wind from God. 
that it was coming immediately. And within minutes, the wind did begin to blow, and it carried them safely past the reefs. And Taylor wrote then, Thus, God encouraged me before landing on China's shores to bring every variety of need to him in prayer and to expect that he would honor the name of the Lord Jesus and give the help each emergency required. It's just such an encouragement to read church history and to see the truths of Psalm 27 not only played out on the pages of Scripture, but in the pages of history as well. Strengthen our faith, Lord. Deepen it. So that when faced with trials, we would not be shaken. We would be like oaks deeply rooted by streams of living water. When the storm comes, we will not be broken, though shaken. Lord, again, it's, we know it's not such courage, such confidence is not natural. And so even as Taylor prayed for a miracle to save them, Lord, we pray for a miracle of faith that you would give us such faith as David had, as Mueller had, as Taylor had. And so that not only would we be firm in the midst of trials and when when faced with fears on every side, but we would have such confidence that we would give peace to other people who are anxious who are nervous, who are fearful, that they would see in us that our confidence is not in vain. But it's it's as real as if our rescue was at hand. Lord, make us such Christians. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.